Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut as we peer into some of the stranger corners of this week's tech news. We've got multiple AI-related stories, a tale of poor data handling by Tesla, startup fraud, and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks and its Prisma Sassy, where AI-powered innovation takes center stage. You can watch the new Palo Alto Networks virtual event on demand to hear how the latest innovations in SASE can help your organization. See how ZTNA 2.0, Cloud, SWG, and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and ROI. Watch on demand at paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sassy dash signature dash moment. We'll also have the links in the show notes if you want to go find it. Uh, after the news, stay tuned for a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation. We're talking with Nokia about GNMIC. It's a free open source command line tool developed by Nokia. You can use to configure devices and collect device telemetry. Uh, and last but not least, if you ever wanted to see Packet Pushers content, not just listen to it, you can check out our YouTube channel. We've got tons of educational videos, analysis, how-tos, and tech demos on networking, security, Kubernetes, and more. Just search Packet Pushers on YouTube and stream away. All right, let's dive into the news. First, Microsoft has announced Security Copilot. This is a chat GPT-powered tool designed to augment the work of security analysts and incident responders. Microsoft says the tool will improve, quote, the quality of detection, speed of response, and ability to strengthen security posture. Yeah, Microsoft's nothing if not predictable. The word Copilot will tell you that it's got AI, chat GPT, open AI, whatever it is, LLM attached to it. Just like in the old days, Microsoft used to put Office on everything. Now it's Copilot right. if it's got AI on it. So the so there's your secret key to opening up the latest series of Microsoft announcements. Um, yes. This is um, not particularly interesting, like in the sense that it was rather predictable, except in certain ways. So my immediate reaction was Microsoft squeezing everything it can out of its OpenAI time to market. Like OpenAI is here now, but what's obviously clear is that Google's going to come out with something. Facebook uh, released the first generation and LAM was called Llama, L-L-M-A-M-A. -A. Um, we've seen a number of other AI startups open source their LLMs to try and keep up with the marketing and sort of say, you know, it's not all open AI. So I think it's clear that open AI has got a leadership, it's first to market, but it's also not clear that open AI is the only winner in this market. I think this market is going to be lots of LLMs and there's nothing stopping other companies coming out with one. Do you agree with that? I do. I think what Microsoft is doing is one, wanting to win that sort of mindshare battle by rolling all these out one after another so quickly. And two, it invested, I think, $10 billion in OpenAI. So it definitely wants to squeeze as much as it can out of that orange. I doubt if it's actually going to get any money out of that orange, but uh, we'll see. Um, and of course, up until now, it's actually added OpenAI to Microsoft Office, to GitHub, to Bing, to OneNote. Just about all of its right. other products have got some LLMs snapped into them somewhere. I mean, I was in Canva, which is a online graphical app, and it's got a mid-journey style AI implementation on it. You can do a text to image converter just so you can create logos a whole lot easier, just to give you an idea of how easy it is to make one of these. So obviously, this is actually about Microsoft Security Copilot, and the idea here is that Microsoft is going to build what is fundamentally a SASE platform. That is, you send all of your data through their security co-pilot and it will start to see, do apply threat detection, non-DNS lookups, you know, various, you know, signatures, heuristics and all that sort of stuff. So companies like CrowdStrike, Zscaler, Cloudflare should all be very concerned because this is directly targeting their business model. Um, although Microsoft doesn't really care, they're just taking open AI and slapping some security on top of it. We've always pointed out that it's been really easy to build this in-cloud SASE inspection engines. There's no barrier to that because anybody can go and buy the same threat feeds, buy the same security data from third parties. There's lots of small companies out there that do threat research in various forms. And Microsoft has now basically said, oh, well, you know, we'll just uh, do something with OpenAI and boom, 
CrowdStrike, Zscaler and Cloudflare have got instant competition um, in that sassy market, although it's not going to be sassy, but it's, I think people are going to eventually realize that it's sassy, it's in Azure, and it's really easily accessible for Microsoft. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure I agree with that. I don't feel like Microsoft is going, at least at this point, to a, a sassy offering. I think this is more for threat hunters, investigators, and incident responders, mm -hmm. um, which makes sense because when you're talking about large language models, my, my assumption is they're doing things like natural language queries, something like you know, a prompt like what happened last night you mm -hmm. know, with this user at this time, and it'll spit out some kind of information that you can then mm -hmm. go uh, hunt down and figure out what happened. Uh, Microsoft also says it's going to integrate Security Copilot with its own security products, and I was like, which ones are those? Because I don't, <laughs> I know Microsoft has like a firewall and so on, but it, they're they're not really a big presence in the security market. So yeah. if I was, you know, oh, Palo Alto, no, 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 Cloudflare, no, no. Microsoft and so on, it would be... Defender is huge. So Microsoft well, Defender, because it's free and it's, but yeah, no, it's not free anymore. It's like a, no, it's used to up, Microsoft Defender is used to upsell customers from a level three to a level five corporate license, oh, okay. and then you get it for free. And basically what they've uh, been okay. saying is, well, if you get level three and you get breached because of a vulnerability in our products, sucks to be you. <laughs> so you know, here's the thing. CrowdStrike published some research this week pointing out that Microsoft had over 900 vulnerabilities in its products in 2022. That's three each day, give or take, right? So Microsoft products are so bad that there are whole companies out there like CrowdStrike who are dedicated to solving Microsoft's vulnerabilities and even Microsoft itself is using Defender to make money. So instead of fixing its vulnerabilities, it's actually selling products to cover them up. I think it's bonkers. But anyway, no, my belief is that this will eventually become a sassy because it's not too hard to re-spin this as a sassy offering. And that will happen probably within months. I mean, I guess this is a good, uh, you know, sort of a physician heal thyself kind of thing when you're talking about Microsoft and security. Like, are you pointing security pilot at your own software development pipeline? Because yeah, you do have a vulnerability issue. Mm -hmm. And if I was a security company, that would be, that would feature heavily in my counter marketing against a security co-pilot. Yeah. Like just how bad does Microsoft have to be that there's an entire industry to cover up how bad Microsoft is. But um, I do think that the sassy market's going to get even more complicated and whether Microsoft knows it or not, it's going to be in that market. Eventually, it's just taking open AI and saying, oh, I can look at all the traffic coming onto Azure and apply security to it. That's sassy, just not from the WAN. You know, we're looking at normally from networking vendors. So I think companies like Fortinet and Palo Alto are not threatened because they control the network edge, right? And if you're using their cloud offerings, you know, Prisma and so forth, Palo Alto's Prisma and Fortinet's cl um, threat cloud, you're just not bothered about it because it's going to go into it and then you're going to send it off to Azure and those those markets are more defensible because they're managing the edge. Yeah, I think the other thing is, I believe Palo Alto has already announced a similar product like this for its SASE platform in that you can get an AI-assisted, you know, sort of AI-ops-assisted uh, service uh, on top of SASE to help you do that threat hunting, threat analysis, uh, remediation, investigation. And I would not be surprised to see other security companies roll out something like this as well. Uh, so Microsoft's trying to put a stake in the ground, but uh, they will not be the only ones to do this. No, not at all, no. All right, links in the show notes. Uh, we'll move on. The Swedish carrier Aurelian says it has successfully transmitted 400 gigabit wavelengths, uh, 1,800 meters over fiber optic cable in a live production network. Aurelian's partnered with the optical networking vendor Infinera to use QSFPDD pluggable transceivers for the transmission. Wow, all these words, all these magic words. I um, got in touch with Aurelian <laughs> and spoke to, <laughs> spoke to the people over there to make sure I understood this. I'm not an optical expert, so I did go to the source for this. And what we're really in was trying to prove here is a test to prove how far a 400 gig ZR signal could run along a typical fiber in their network, right? 
now the fiber has signal amplifiers every 800 to 100 kilometers as usual. So EDFAs or Raman pumps that will just rebuild the physical signal as it degrades transmitting down the fiber. But what it does mean is that they're actually um, moving the 400 gig ZR standard, which is normally about 80 to 100 kilometers. But this is a special transceiver from Infinera using a coherent transmission. And it was to prove that the distance could be covered. Not that it's actually, it's not all that practical to actually use 1,800 kilometers of fiber just for one 400 gigabit path, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It makes much more sense to put a wave division multiplexer on it and transmit, you know, 24, 48, 96, whatever it is, over the top of those paths than it is to just get one 400 out of it. But it dramatically reduces the cost of bandwidth provision to certain locations. So if you think um, normally what you would do for long haul runs or historically what you have done, let me say that, it's a better way of saying it, you would put a router and you would connect it to an Ethernet shelf in a DWDM shelf, and then you would add a wave division multiplex transponder, and then you would put the Ethernet onto the uh, onto the WDM, and then off it would go. So you would have to buy this router and then a DWDM edge, and it would go off to the. This is saying I can just plug the router directly in, and boom, I'm away. Right? I don't, and that whole WDM edge, and that saves a lot of money and a lot of power, and a lot of installation time, and it it changes a whole bunch of things, and. Juniper and Cisco, of course, are all very excited about this because now their routers are participating in the optical network, which means that they can charge more for their routers because they're replacing the WDM shelves. So it does mean that things like if you consider a mobile phone tower out somewhere, it means instead of actually going and putting a WDM shelf at the base of the mobile phone tower with all the power and provisioning stuff, you can just drop a 400 gig ZR in there and you don't actually have to you know, save a lot of money because you may not ever need more than 400 gigs of bandwidth at a tower in a rural area, for example. And if you know that you can run at 1,800 kilometers, then off you go. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, I just want to correct, I think I said 1,800 meters in my <laughs> uh, run up to this and it's it's kilometers. That's oh. a significantly longer distance. <laughs> so to give you an idea, that's Barcelona in Spain to Berlin in Germany, roughly that distance. It's a long way, okay. right? Mm-hmm. Or New York City way, yep. to Oklahoma City, wherever that is. So- Mm-hmm. Um, or for the Americans, uh, because in the news on America, they always talk about football fields. That is 19,676 football fields. Well, that makes it a lot clearer. Yeah, I've just noticed that in the news, they always say so many football fields in length. It's, I just wanted to make that relevance there. So uh, that's American football fields, by the way, not- uh, I was going to say, we're talking American football, yeah. not that not that. That's American European football imposter. fields, not European football fields. Yes, in this case. But that's a really, I, I think this is really interesting to think about. Um, we talked a lot about how the price of bandwidth is dropping, and this is an example of that. It's just easier for telcos to install more bandwidth as the technology changes in that direction, and I really don't understand why they just don't focus on that. And Aurelian is a company in that vein. They just want to – they think the solution to all cost problems is more bandwidth. Like them. like that thinking. like that thinking. All right. Well, links in the show notes if you want to go check it out for yourself. Uh, we'll move on. Uh, Reuters reports that Tesla employees passed around, quote, highly invasive images and videos recorded by Tesla car cameras, including crashes, road rage incidents, and footage recorded in customers' driveways and garages, including apparently one person walking to their vehicle naked. Uh, Reuters says images and videos were shared via an internal messaging system in Tesla and were sometimes turned into memes with captions and commentary. People can't help themselves, really. <laughs> like, how many times have we heard this story? And I thought I'd bring it back to this one. I mean, you found it, Drew, but I thought the commentary that I would make here is um, Tesla is still a newish company and it's very hard. Like, all the signals are that the management is driving employees very hard and they're not really mm-hmm. taking time to build a culture 
want to let people settle in. They're they're very much, uh, it's very much a company on edge trying to get somewhere. And it's it, and part of that is that the company hasn't had to address these type of issues before. So th- when culture takes a turn like this, they usually turn into trouble. And on top of that, Tesla has a history of poor treatment of its workers, especially in the factory. But more generally, I've heard people who work in Tesla's IT and say it's not a very nice place to work, mm-hmm. you know, and Tesla doesn't particularly like its workers. Any attempts to unionize or to get better conditions generally result in executives doing some fairly harsh activities to prevent or to block or to harass the people involved. So that sort of builds a culture of disrespect in a company. We don't often talk about this, but when you build a culture of disrespect to both the executives and the company itself, it tends to flow over into customers. So this sort of thing has act, just happens, I think. That, that, that would be my thoughts anyway. Sure. Uh, I guess I'm not going to excuse the behavior based on company culture, though. It's still, I think, kind of reprehensible and a little gross. Um, it's just poor data handling practices. Although I will say more and more cars, not just Teslas, are going to be adding cameras and collecting data. Mm-hmm. Um, presumably, it's about improving driver assist technology and maybe getting us to mm-hmm. full self-driving. But I think we as consumers have to understand that these privacy issues are just going to get worse and worse. I think so. Um, people always forget that someone in the IT team has access to everything, Right. Yeah. Um, right. I have never read the CEO's email or checked the files in the HR directory. Of course, I would say that I have never done that. Or indeed, during an acquisition, monitor- because data privacy is important <laughs> that, to you. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> you take it very seriously. Yes, just because I was part of the IT team and I had administrator rights to everything on other systems does not mean that I looked at those things. But people always seem to forget that someone has access to everything, right? And that's right. If that someone is disgruntled or unhappy, then you know maybe this sort of thing gets out of control. But I do feel that this is a culture thing. I, I, and yeah, you know, the days of getting into the back seat of your car to have a little bit of you know fun at the driving, <laughs> maybe think twice. Right. Not that I've ever done that either. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, but, uh, you know, bring some uh, some kind of covering for the cameras because you never know who's watching. Uh, th- I think the last thing I'm going to say about this is, you know, not only tech companies are going to know everything about you, you know, where you go, what you do, how you live your life. They might also turn you into a meme to amuse the surveillers. It's it's the cherry on top of the Panopticon Sunday. <laughs> Good stuff. I like it. Yeah, well, I, bet, I bet they had a lot of... Uh, uh, just There'd be just too much stuff going on there. I know. If you've got the wrong culture, yeah. that's going to be the problem for sure. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Uh, quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. 2023 is a year when companies will need to do more with less as businesses grapple with economic uncertainty. It's more critical than ever to consolidate fragmented security and networking solutions to reduce operational cost and complexity. Palo Alto Networks has a new virtual event on its Prisma Sassy, where AI-powered innovation takes center stage. You can watch this event on demand and see how ZTNA 2.0, Cloud Secure Web Gateways, and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and ROI. You can hear how the latest innovations in Sassy can help your organization automate costly and complex IT operations with AI-powered digital experience management, connect and secure branch offices and the hybrid workforce with SD-WAN, ZTNA 2.0, and Cloud SWG, and unlock better ROI through consolidation of point solutions with Prisma Sassy. If you want to watch it on demand, go to paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sassy dash signature dash moment. That's paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sassy dash signature dash moment. And we'll have that link in the show notes. Yep. Uh, sticking with privacy issues, uh, manufacturing giant Samsung apparently leaked company secrets via ChatGPT, including information about semiconductors under development. That's according to a story in the Register. Yeah, this was pretty widely reported. It wasn't just the Register; it was a uh, Tech Radar and a number of other entities. I think this was originally published as a blogger who sort of 
noted that some of Samsung's code was coming up in the chat GPT responses. Oops. <laughs> so, uh, turns out uh, after talking with people at Samsung, Samsung had given permission for its employees to use ChatGPT to write code for its proprietary systems. And the executives had lifted a ban on using ChatGPT, uh, but apparently it turns out that if you add your code into the prompt, then ChatGPT may or choose to ingest that data for its own purposes and then make it available in other people's responses. And people have actually discovered proprietary Samsung source code. Uh, in the responses, which is kind of embarrassing. Yeah, that's a problem. Mm. That's mm. definitely a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny that, you know, Samsung had initially banned ChatGPT uh, employees from using it and then said, okay, we're going to go ahead and, and try it out and see what happens because we want our employees to have access to these tools. And it didn't take long before leaks started happening. Yeah, I think the interesting part here is there's so many eyes on OpenAI right now. There's so many people looking at and playing with it and poking it. Uh, at some point, I think it'll change. I my sense is that I've been watching a number of tools, especially there was an AI tool I tweeted out on my Twitter feed earlier this week where someone's taken an LLM, trained it up on Python, and you can feed your code into it and it'll come back and tell you where the errors are in your code, and mm -hmm. which is super interesting. And it's a bit rough and ready at this stage, as the person said, he said, but if you was learning to code, this could be a very useful tool to helping you understand where you're making mistakes as you're going through the code. I think this kind of testing, once we come up with specially trained models on high quality source code with a specific focus on, you know, debugging or testing or validation or adding comments or whatever, those are the things that you want. And preferably for now, you want something that you can install on your laptop. So there are versions of these code testing tools that you can bring down uh, and install on a MacBook M1, M2, uh, because uh, Apple Macs have an AI inference uh, processor on board. There is actually a uh, but what is fundamentally an AI hardware accelerator in on that laptop, and it can actually do AI inference at fairly high speed. You can't do it on Windows, but you can on an M1, especially an M1, M2 Pro Calypso capability. Mm -hmm. And I saw some demos mm -hmm. of it. And I was like, wow, I might also want to pick back up Python if this is here to help coach me through it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm willing to get back here. Yeah, I think a couple of months. It won't take long before we'll see versions that you can download as open source projects. And I would also bet that there's commercial projects coming up very soon now that'll be, yes. you know, dedicated to that sort of task here. Yeah. I'm seeing links here uh, back to that Tesla story we just discussed on one hand, you know, it's consumers not really having a good understanding of what it means when they, you know, give uh, their uh, tech vendor permission to, to use their data. I think the same now applies to corporations as well. When you're using tools like ChatGPT, OpenAI does have language in their, you know, contracts on, you know, if you use this data or use our APIs, this is what could happen. So that I think, you know, they're going to say that's on you because mm -hmm. we already told you about this. So, you know, companies are going to have to maybe bring in the lawyers and go through these kind of things with a fine tooth comb and then do some employee training to make sure that this kind of stuff doesn't happen. So these tools are, as all tools are, you know, double-edged, you can uh, use them to build things and also use them to, to bash yourself in the thumb. So mm. a warning. <laughs> Uh, moving on, Apple has won a round in a 13-year-long court battle over VPN patents with a company called Virnet X, where more than $500 million are at stake. An appeals court has upheld a ruling in Apple's favor, saying that the VPN patent infringement claims made by uh, Virnet X shouldn't stand because the technology isn't patentable. Uh, this lawsuit began back in 2010 when Virnet sued Apple for allegedly infringing uh, technology and products like FaceTime. In 2018, a court ordered Apple to pay $502 million. Apple has appealed multiple times since and has so far prevailed. Uh, it seems like Virnet will appeal this as well and the battle will be ongoing. Yeah, I think the the lesson here is um, patent trolls because Virnet X has a, a fairly solid reputation as a 
patent troll. I think you would agree with that based on the articles. I read a number of articles about this and everybody's sort of like painting Vernet X as the devil here. <laughs> I mean, Wikipedia says that the company has been accused of being a patent troll, which, you know, gives it a little bit of distance mm. and I guess gives us a little bit of distance for being sued. So, but yes, it, it, it does smell a little bit uh, mm. like basically what they've got is a patent portfolio, not actually any products that they're trying to sell. Yeah. So if, if that is the case, then what we have generally seen is that big companies like Apple will tend to fight everything because they don't want to be batting on thousands of trolls, patent trolls, right. sending them cases. So Apple is now going to take this on and on and on and on. And Vernet has got, you know, 500 million reasons effectively to keep chasing <laughs> after this. Um, but if you're going to be a patent troll and you think you're going to shake down Apple and walk away with a couple of million of easy money, Apple's making a signal here, I believe that, no, no, you're either going to have to, you know, really put down some serious money to take us on because we aren't letting you get away with it easily. It's going to have to go all the way over and over and over and over. Um, be ready for that fight if you come at us sort of thing. Well, there is evidence that Vernet uh, X knows what it's in for because it did win a previous judgment against mm -hmm. Apple and got $454 million in royalties mm -hmm. out of patents it had that Apple was apparently infringing on. So yes, it does it does have a track record on uh, um, winning against Apple. And so, yes, as you said, it does have 500 million reasons to keep going. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, obviously there's some money there to pursue the case from a previous win. But I also think Apple's saying, yeah, you can keep coming at us, but we're just going to keep going and we're just going to keep lawyering up against you. And Apple's got the money to do that. So, and they are also well known for their ability to say, no, no, well, we'll never accept trolls. So that's what I think the lesson here is, is that, Patent trolls aren't having it as easy as they were, say, 15 to 20 years ago. And this case right. is a clear sign of, you know, this is why patent trolls aren't having so much fun these days. If there's anyone with bottomless money for lawsuits, it, it's Apple. So, yeah, <laughs> I guess a tip of the hat to the lawyers in this case. Yeah, I read an article today saying they've got $165 billion in cash. <laughs> they could buy, like, major tech companies with no hit to the bottom line, just a reduction yeah, in cash at hand. <laughs> Just cash. Like just cash. <laughs> just just that walking around yeah. money. And that yeah. includes after they've dispersed, like they've been doing share buybacks and like mm -hmm. huge buybacks and all that sort of stuff. Just unbelievable how much money that company makes. All right. Our last story for the day, uh, startup founder Charlie Javis has been arrested and charged with fraud uh, for allegedly misleading J.P. Morgan Chase about her company. J.P. Morgan Chase paid $175 million to acquire Javis's app, which helps students navigate the financial aid process. Uh, Javis allegedly convinced J.P. Morgan Chase the app had 4.25 million users, when in fact it only had around 300,000. This is a classic. It really is. I, uh, the story I want to take to you here is J.P. Morgan presents its image of the baddest, biggest investment bank in the world. And it is you know, its employees are the masters of the universe and they know how to make money and they can help you do the biggest, baddest financial investments in the world. So the idea of them being swindled by a largely talentless 31-year-old who has no particular banking history is hilarious, right? They wanted to buy this and didn't really do enough due diligence or even simple competency to end up in this situation where, and apparently it wasn't even particularly hidden and it was reasonably well known. So this has been going on for a while, but now it's actually gotten to the point where it's getting a bit aggressive. They've actually laid charges. And I just find JP Morgan looking like fools to be absolutely hilarious. I wonder why they've let it get this far. Yeah, you know, fraud is bad. Uh, I will say that. But it, does it does it bother me that it's JP Morgan Chase with some egg on its face? No. No, it not at all. Um, but apparently they... <laughs> but yeah, but... Uh, 
based on the criminal complaint, there really was significant fraud here in that they didn't have the numbers that they said they did to JP Morgan Chase. So they actually went out and hired a data scientist to invent fake data. Uh, and when that didn't pass the sniff test, they just went out and bought college students data for like $100,000, 4.5 million records for $100,000 and said, okay, here it is. And JP Morgan Chase was like, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, great. It's all right. It's classic. It's just like amazing that dishonesty at that level of scale is just and getting away with it of, you know, one of the companies that presents themselves as one of the top tier buyers and sellers of companies. You know, it's it's incredibly embarrassing. Yeah. Apparently it's like entirely transparent. Like it's not, it was obvious to anybody who looked. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that I, th I think maybe some of the patina is starting to come off the the, the mythos of the young tech genius. I, I guess this person was like a, a Forbes 30 under 30 and so on. There was a lot of hype around her. So uh, this case, cases like uh, the Theranos person, Elizabeth Holmes, uh, Sam of Friedman Banks uh, from the, the, on the crypto side, these sort of young genius visionaries uh, turns out not so genius. <laughs> Often enough, I mean that's not new in the tech industry. Unless, <laughs> unless fraud is what their genius is at, maybe that's, uh, well, I, that's where their skill set is. Let's just go with you know, stupid is as stupid does. <laughs> oh, something equivalently trite. Yeah, something equivalent. Yes. All right, that wraps up the news portion of the show. Stick around for a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Nikia. We're talking about its new GNMIC tool for device configuration and telemetry collection. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking GNMIC with Nokia. Now, we've had several discussions with Nokia, particularly about SR Linux, which is their ground-up networks operating system based on modern software development. So this is a complete rewrite for a network operating system for routers and switches and all the products in the Nokia networks portfolio. And this SR Linux comes with containers, APIs, it's got automation-ready, telemetry capabilities, all that stuff that we talk about in a modern NOS that that's come there. And it's, it also comes with a lot of the code in there has actually been ported over from what's been proven. So Nokia's BGP stacks and all that sort of stuff. But what we haven't highlighted enough in the last, say, year or two of working with Nokia is their contributions to open source. They've been making substantial developments and contributing them to open source for anybody to use. So today we're actually talking about GNMIC, which is a best as I can come up with it is a command line tool for GNMI that was developed during lockdown, but then found surprising demand and use cases from customers. There's a weird one here where NMI is being used to make SNMP uh, last a bit longer, which is sad, but good, right? So joining us today is Kareem Rudani. He's a technology and architecture consulting engineer who was crazy enough to write the early versions of GNMIC. And let's get into it by getting Karim to start with a brief introduction to GNMI, because you really can't talk about GNMIC without it. Kareem. GNMI is a network management uh, interface defined by the OpenConfig working group. It aims to allow users to um, modify and retrieve configuration from uh, routers. Mm -hmm. It uses gRPC as a uh, transport mechanism. So you get all the goodies from gRPC and HTTP2. So streaming, the uh, credentials, security, mm -hmm. uh, and so on. It defines uh, a few uh, RPCs, so four. Mm. So as I understand it, gRPC is like a default protocol format for querying between two software applications. Is that right? Correct. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. And so in the same way that email, say, you know, the SMTP protocol runs over IP, you know, or TCP, 
then GNMI uses gRPC as, a, as an abstraction layer underneath it. That's correct. So you didn't have to invent the whole protocol for gRPC that you just used for GNMI, just use gRPC. That is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, GNMI just defines the specific services and RPCs that should be transported over gRPC. gRPC defines the uh, encoding mechanisms and the client-server um, interactions, but it doesn't define the message structure or the message content. So okay. GNMI adds adds that on top of gRPC. And it's the default way to read and write from router configurations going forward, really, isn't it? It's the default way and the only way if you're using GNMI, yeah. So let's talk about GNMIC and what does it do? I mean, you told me that you were writing this as a lockdown project, which sounds kind of nuts. I mean, why would you write a um, command line about GNMI? Well, at that time, there was really no easy way to interact with routers speaking uh, GNMI. As part of my job description at that time, I was responsible for uh, anything automation Mm. and uh, explaining GNMI or, uh, let's say, converting customers to GNMI. If I don't understand it myself or if I can't use it myself or make it easy to use for, for others, then that's basically mission impossible. So uh, I started this trying with, with a few other colleagues. I uh, started this uh, with the goal of learning GNMI myself and uh, eventually creating a, an easy way to interact with routers and see how the server side of GNMI behaves. So you came up with a tool called GNMIC. What, what is it that, that tool does? It allows you to be on the client side of GNMI. You can run commands that uh, run the RPCs that are specified by uh, the GNMI OpenConfig spec. You can customize them, so you can change uh, the message content. Uh, You can combine different commands together, uh, run them almost as a workflow, but maybe two or three commands together, not uh, more than that. Basically makes your life easy or easier if you're interacting with a GNMI speaker. Okay, so I, if I'm on a client and I've got a GNMI speaker, presumably a router, I can interact with that router, I can get telemetry from that device, I can Can I also do configuration tasks? Correct, correct. So if you want to get telemetry, it's the subscribe command, as simple as writing GNMI C, subscribe, and then specifying the path that you want uh, the router to stream back to you. If you want to change configuration, it's the set command. Uh, you specify the path and the value that you want to modify uh, on the router if you want to get uh, configuration, meaning retrieving configuration without subscribing to it. So you just retrieve it, you get it once, and then the connection is uh, closed. That's the get command. And the idea here is that Nokia developed this internally, but you've then open sourced it and it's now with the open config project? Um, yes, correct. So uh, I think sometime... Uh, last around end of last year, this project moved to OpenConfig because it's so uh, I would say wide adoption from the community, so from both customers and other vendors. So we thought that it would be good to have this become the because the de facto CLI for uh, GNMI. Can I ask a silly question? Because it sounds to me a bit like one of the tools that when I was playing with SNMP. Um, like, you know, 10 or 15 years ago was we used to get SNMP walkers and you'd issue a command. So you didn't have to sort of type, like get onto a Linux console and type SNMP walk, blah, 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 and the OID. 
you would just be able to load it in and then be able to walk down the, the OID tree and see it. Is it conceptually similar to that in the set, but it's a command line? So that when you're writing to and from the GNMI APIs, you want to know what's in there. You want to understand them or something. There are different ways of using GNMIC. So it depends. It really depends on your goal. If you want to learn GNMI and see how it works under the hood, you go to the CLI and you run command by command. You look at responses and uh, that gives you an idea of what the router is doing or what the router is trying to send back to you. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to be productive and collect uh, metrics store them somewhere and then build some dashboards out of it, out of it or uh, run some closed loop automation uh, workflow, then you run GNMIC as, as a daemon. You can configure it using a file. You don't have to type the whole uh, CLI command and then uh, do it manually. You can run it as a daemon and it will do what you tell it to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, in that sense, it's a little bit of both or it can be both depending on your needs. So if I'm using it for telemetry, then it's generating output. Where does that output go? Do I need some kind of collector or target for that telemetry coming in? You have a lot of options uh, there where you want uh, to write your output. So usually when, you, when you're starting, you don't really know how the data uh, will look like that you're getting from the router. You can either dump that into the terminal or write it to a file and then uh, look at it manually. Uh, once you know how the data looks like and you have an idea of how you want to uh, potentially modify it and how you want to store it, you have a whole list of outputs that you can uh, you can use. So the usual uh, ones are the, the popular TSDBs like InfluxDB, Prometheus, and the other mm -hmm. flavors of Prometheus like Torium Metrics or Cortex and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, you can also write uh, into a message queue if you have a consumer on the other side picking up uh, the data and eventually writing it into another TSDB or uh, reacting to it again to uh, do some sort of closed loop automation. Mm -hmm. um, another way uh, to use the output is to modify it and convert it into a completely different protocol. So uh, what GNMIC can do here is converting your GNMI telemetry or notifications into SNMP traps. This is uh, an effort to uh, integrate with, let's say, legacy systems uh, that are still there. Right. Uh, and you can really get rid of them uh, for some reason. Uh, that's not technical, obviously, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you want to get GNMI data and generate SNMP traps out of it. Yeah. Okay. So if I've already invested in a whole bunch of SNMP infrastructure, uh, I can start to incorporate information that I'm getting from these routers via GNMIC and GNMIC is going to do that conversion for me into SNMP? Uh, yes. Yes. But just for traps, just to be clear. Just for traps. Only, okay. Yeah. Just for traps, no gets and sets, no get now, next. Now that sounds but even just crazy. Traps, that means if I've got, you know, triggering systems set up or whatever, it will work with those because it can get into a trap. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what do you see uh, customers using this for? The main use case is streaming telemetry. That's basically what GNMI is known for. Uh, it's the main use case or the most popular use case that uh -huh. found the most adoption. So uh, that's what uh, GNMI is most known for. A lot of uh, customers use it to collect metrics from their routers, from multiple routers at the same time, and multiple vendors at the same time. That's what uh, GNMIC allows you to do. Okay, so this isn't just for Nokia. If, uh, if there are other routers that are supporting GRPC, essentially, you can use this? 
Correct. All you have to do is uh, put in the correct paths. So the paths that match uh, the Yang model of the router. And uh, you'll be able to get uh, metrics from that router, modify them whichever way you want and store them or, or use them uh, to fit your, uh, your use case. So again, most common use case is collecting telemetry from routers, storing them in a TSDB, and then uh, use some visualization dashboard like Grafana. Uh-huh. To, to look at your metrics and draw some nice charts that tell you what's happening in uh, in your network. Okay, so again, it's all fully open source compliant with all of the common tools, Prometheus, Grafana, and so on, in keeping with the spirit yes. of, of the whole. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's maintained, and whenever there is a new version of Prometheus, InfluxDB, we make sure to test it and, uh, and upgrade as well. Okay. And we even try to keep backward compatibility with previous uh, versions of uh, those days. <laughs> must be fun. Not everybody. <laughs> uh, that part, yeah, it's not as fun, but I mean, it's it's part of the commitment. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yes. It's your commitment yeah, to the community. Yeah. Yes. Respectable. Correct. Correct. Uh, besides streaming telemetry, right. are there other things you're seeing folks use it for in the real world? Uh, yeah. So uh, basically network management, meaning uh, config retrieval and uh, modification. So GNMIC being a CLI, uh, you can essentially use it in any script or any sort of script that uh, that you want. I see even people calling it uh, shell out from Python and uh, running it or uh, running GNMIC CLI in GitHub Actions or any CICD pipeline. So uh, that way you get repeatable uh, actions that are logged without having to uh, do too much work. You just run it as part of a script action. And there you go. You have uh, an automated configuration uh, system. Okay. And can we spend just a little bit of time talking about... um how I would set up and use it. Is this like a significant commitment in terms of resources? Do I have to have a, you know, a bunch of servers or clients or whatever to run this on? What Give me a sense of what it's like to get this up and running in my own, either in a lab or, you know, in my network. So GNMIC is very simple to use. That was also uh, part of uh, the initial design or the initial intention. It's a single binary. All you have to do is download it and place it uh, in your uh, path. Uh, in your uh, Linux system or uh, under Windows, but you will have to use WSL for that. You can use it on uh, Mac as well. Mm-hmm. So single binary, get the binary, place it wherever you want, make it executable and run it. Uh, you can configure it using flags or a configuration file. That's up to you, depending on what you like or on your use case. So get the binary, write the config file, and it runs. It's really as simple as that. No dependencies, nothing. Yeah, that's great. All right, well, that does uh, bring us to the end of our time, Karim. Uh, where can folks get their hands on GNMIC if they want? And is there anything else you would like folks to know about? Well, it's open source. So uh, go to the GitHub repo. So github.com uh, slash openconfig slash GNMIC. Uh, go through the readme. There is a link towards the documentation uh, website. You can open an issue if... Uh, you had a problem uh, using GNMIC or a discussion if you have any questions. Uh, we are also hosting a hackathon in uh, Europe uh, this June as part of our SR experts uh, uh, event. So if you're coming there, you'll be able to get uh, your hands dirty with GNMIC. Okay, is this hackathon just for GNMIC or is it all SR Linux? Uh, it's SR Linux, uh, other products of Nokia, and GNMIC as a tool to interact with the routers. Yeah. 
Okay. And I assume if folks go onto Nokia.com and search, they'll find uh, information on how to get to the hackathon if they're interested. All right. That's great. And for GNMIC itself, again, github.com slash openconfig slash GNMIC will also have that link in the show notes. Well, Kareem, thank you for being here with us. Uh, thank you, Nokia, for sponsoring us. And thank you for listening. If you like this episode, you can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn. Hear us on Spotify and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.